Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This podcast series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture to bring you the latest research-based information on tree care. We'll be providing full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners so that you can listen at your convenience and keep up to date with the new developments in arboriculture. We'll be releasing a new podcast about once a month for you to download. We recommend that you subscribe to this series in iTunes or directly from the ISA website so you don't have to miss a single topic. If you have a favorite arboricultural topic that you would like to learn more about, please contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series, at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, the host of this series, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Today's talk is by Dr. Bonnie Appleton, Professor of Horticulture at Virginia Tech University, and Mindy Ruby, Manager of Research and Development for the Filtera Stormwater Treatment Products Company. They will be speaking on phytoremediation of water using landscape plants. This talk was originally presented at the ISA International Meeting in Providence, Rhode Island in July 2009. As our world uh, becomes covered with more and more impervious surfaces, be they parking lots, sidewalks, buildings, we have less and less pervious area, less and less area where stormwater runoff is going to go. Uh, there has been an act and sort of an amendment to it that is very important and is, is part of what is behind the research that we are doing, and that's the Clean Air uh, Water Act of 1972. This was the, the U.S. start kind of to really looking at protection of quality of surface water, and there are a number of tools that can be employed uh, to deal with the polluted stormwater runoff. Um, but in the beginning, they were focusing on what they call point source pollution, and that's things like municipal sewage treatment plants and industries that are discharged into a water source. I live on a lake, and in 15 minutes, I can paddle my kayak past the amphibious base at Little Creek, the largest amphibious base in the world, and be out in the Chesapeake Bay, which is the world's largest estuary. So right in my front yard, one of the most important areas that we have that we need to protect. It wasn't until the late 80s that they decided it was not enough to look at just source runoff, that they actually needed to be looking at non-point source runoff, and that's where we come in. 
That's where landscapes are involved, where sites that you might be involved uh, come in. And so that's more where our focus is going to be at this point. If you notice the uh, little logos that are there, those are beginning to pop up, particularly along the East Coast, because the top one is uh, my home state of New Jersey, and the bottom one is from uh, Virginia, but to remind people going down those stormwater drains is going to affect many, many organisms. I'm going to just quickly go through a number of different ways that we can deal with stormwater runoff. Uh, and these, most of you I'm aware of, um, stormwater ponds and BMPs or best management practices is certainly an extremely common one that can be used in commercial, residential, whatever settings. Wetlands, where we're using a variety of uh, terrestrial and uh, aquatic plants to filter the water. And we found that there's another type of wetland called a compact wetland. I was going to put it in here, but I don't know enough about it. So I'm going to go explore it. It's in uh, Virginia. And hopefully by the next time we, I present some information to you, I will know what a compacted wetland is. Uh, grass swales are a very common way to deal with polluted runoff. Certainly rain gardens, which are becoming a very important design feature. The one in the bottom left is one that one of colleagues has done at our research center in Virginia Beach. Buffer zones, uh, the buffer zone in the bottom right is at the Morton Arboretum. The bottom left is at our research center. Uh, and that is our irrigation pond, and we're getting ready to uh, strip out a lot of the vegetation around it and put plants that we hope are phytoremediators on the entire uh, irrigation pond so that the runoff from particularly our turf research that tends to have a lot of nitrogen uh, can be remediated. Green roofs, another thing that's becoming important. The Europeans far ahead of us as far as this technology, but we're finding many more of these in the United States now. And then just a very easy way to have more um, pervious areas. Use paving that is pervious uh, for parking lots. Sites use stepping stones instead of you know poured concrete sidewalks. There are some manufactured treatment units, and what you see here is four of them that are on the market. These actually do treat the pollutants that are going down the storm drains. So these are different from just a regular storm drain. There is something that the water is going through that is going to help with the uptake of pollutants and, in some cases, uh, organisms that may be detrimental as well. Want to uh, make sure that affirms are familiar to you. Um, kind of a, a broad umbrella term is bioretention. And this is where water is retained somewhere, is through the use of aerobic plants, soil, and microorganisms that you will find cleanup of the runoff. Um, phytoremediation is instead of retaining things, we are uh, detaining and then releasing um, the storm water. And there are a number of ways in which plants do this. And the word phyto, meaning plant, and remediation, plants are doing something to, in this case, the stormwater runoff. 
There are numerous types of phytoremediation, and I'm not going to go through and explain all of them because I don't fully understand yet how all of them work. But you'll notice with two of them, it's not only phytoremediation, it's rhizo, whatever it is. And that means that it's really not the whole plant that is involved in the cleanup process, but it is the, the root system and the space right around it where the mycorrhizal fungi and things are located because mycorrhizal fungi are very important in the uptake of pollutants. Um, there are what we have found in the literature based four categories of plants that are currently used in phytoremediation. Uh, aquatic plants are one of the earliest and, and most common ones at point. Uh, grasses, particularly if they're used in the swales that I was showing you, are one of our mediation means. There are a few crops. Um, you know, I want to be sure that I'm not eating spinach. It's been used to take up uh, heavy metals, but the bottom one was the one that caught my eye. Trees. Now look at that interesting list of trees, and the one that really intrigued me initially was black walnut. I thought, well, gee, that tree's out there poisoning other plants in the landscape, and yet it has the ability to clean up stuff. Well, that's kind of cool, all right? Um, so most recent research that I'm aware in the United States dealing with phytoremediation has been done at Clemson University by a very dear friend of mine, Bob Kolumsky, and a number of his colleagues. Bob was working with aquatic plants, and I do apologize, this is not a picture from his work. I'm attempting to get that. Those are actually water hyacinths that you're seeing there in the BMP. But those are the types of plants that he's using, so that's from one of the categories of plants used in phytoremediation. We have two different research projects that are going on at our research center, uh, the name of which is the Hampton Roads Agricultural Research and Extension Center in Virginia Beach. Uh, the first one is one that I've been doing with one of my actual colleagues, and she is uh, a PhD student with me, Fox, and Lori is doing this work for a PhD through Wageningen University in the Netherlands. And we used water hyacinths, even though they are on the noxious weed list in many places, and they're going to take a water hyacinth out of your little pond in your backyard and put it out into a body of water if you're in a more southern climate because it'll go to town. We seem to be in Virginia Beach, which is zone 8A, kind of borderline hardiness. Some years they'll survive, some years they won't. But we always warn people that if they're going to use this or the, this plant for phytoremediation, please do not let it get away from you. Uh, the reason for using the water hyacinths for remediation initially was because they reproduce and grow very, very quickly. And so we could bulk a lot of plants in a short period of time and be taking up a lot of And you can see on the right, a mama with the runner and then additional runners, small plants that are developing. And as I mentioned, this is a very fast, fast process, usually 10 to 12 days, and you've got more of them walking all over the place. The reason it is something desirable in ponds is particularly that purple flower that you see there. But again, this is a plant you do not want to have escaping. Uh, in the bottom right, you see uh, Lori's setup for doing this research. She set up 64 ponds that were made out of concrete block and then lined with plastic. And 
that gave us the ability to put nitrogen and phosphorus of different contents or different rates in and test the ability of the water highest to take it up. That's our more old type of uh, research. Our world research is what you see on the left-hand side. And uh, a former graduate student, Jeremy Beach, worked with us to do this. He's the superintendent of this golf course, Bayville Golf Course, which is one of the most environmentally conscious uh, golf courses I've ever seen, but for one reason it, in, it enters the Haven River, which goes directly into the Chesapeake Bay, so he has to be very careful. Um, as his master's project, we developed a series of corrals that you see here, which do have a box, so we are completely containing these plants. And we were testing different materials here to see what was the best containment system. And then what we would do is once these had propagated to the point that the whole corral was full, we could hold the thing in, test the water hyacinths, and use it as a top dress on the golf course. Um, what the ultimate goal of this research was, was to be able to develop a model, and that is what Wageningen University is well known for, uh, agricultural modeling, meaning you take a crop and use it to predict something. And so what we were going to do is figure out how many water hyacinths over what period of time were needed to take up what percent nitrogen and or phosphorus out of the water. And then you could use that to help figure out, I need to clean this up, and this is the amount of pollution in it, so I need these many water hyacinths, and in this period of time, voila, I should have water. You can see that as we give them additional nitrogen and phosphorus, they sort of go to town, uh, reproducing. And the second project, and uh, this is one that I would refer to as our real world, more old, uh, research project because it's out there in a bunch of industrial sites and such and we really don't have control over a lot of what happens and we have four objectives of this part of our research. Um, one of them is to find small and medium to large shrubs we could use for phytoremediation and the reason we picked that category was all right they've already worked with they've worked with the grasses what we need is shrubs and trees that will remediate that can be used in and green roofs and um, buffer zones and rain gardens we need to look at our vast palette of woody plants um, and the literature has very few of them in there so far um, a second objective is to look at the plant that may have uh, phytoremediation capacity, and we're looking at plants that would do what we call hyperaccumulation. They would absorb additional nitrogen and phosphorus, would not need that much for their growth, but can simply store it in their tissue without becoming toxic. It's kind of like white pine and Christmas tree production. You can sock them with extra nitrogen, they'll take it up, but they won't grow any faster or any better than that. So we want to evaluate these plants for their landscape characteristics, because if they're not nice-looking plants, we're not going to get people to use them in these different landscape features these different remediation uh, methodologies, um, we need to find out if they're commercially available, and if they're not, then we need to figure out how to propagate and produce them, and hopefully relatively easily, or our nursery isn't going to produce them for us. As I mentioned, um, we've been testing uh, 
with Lori, we were testing in the greenhouse. Uh, with Mindy, we're testing in the landscape. So that's a second one. Our, our third of our objectives is to look at the woodies the same way we were looking at the water height. And then we feel a fourth objective needs to be that we educate the green industry about what this concept is and encourage as we find plants that are hyperaccumulators or filtration ones or oxidizers or whatever they happen to be, that these are very important to incorporate into landscape designs as we do them. Back to my original categories, you'll notice I have blown up one tree species. And this is the one that we are focusing on because this is the one that we have found the greatest amount of literature, again, is very limited about. And the bulk of what we have found is from Europe, not from the United States. We're indebted to our colleagues across the Atlantic Ocean for information to at least get us started. You'll notice poplar there also, and they're both in the Salicaceae family, but we were not about to start playing around with poplars. That was just not going to be an acceptable plant as a landscape plant. Plus, with the willows, we have shrub and tree uh, species that we can look at, so we had a much broader palette available to us. Um, and I'm not going to go through any of this literature in detail, but I want to just show you we have been able to find some literature that does talk about what these plants are capable of doing. In this case, it was not the nitrogen phosphorus that we're targeting, but it was actually heavy metals. Uh, here it's talking about treating uh, waste products. Uh, here it's talking about um, uh, transforming chlorinated beans. You know. Uh, here it's talking about the mycorrhizae that I mentioned, which would go along with those two terms that were rhizo-whatever kind of remediation. Um, here's another one uh, talking about degrading the materials and improving water quality, and again, the same type of thing. Those are six references. That's basically what we have had to get started with. Now, we have three major tree species of willow that we would have in Virginia, and none of them were acceptable to start. Our native black willow, uh-uh, we're not going to start sticking that into rams and buffer zones and what have you. Uh, certainly, the weeping willow would be gorgeous to use, but it is too big for most of these situations, and I'm not aware of, but any of you might know of a cultivar that's a, a petite one. We could uh, take a look at that. And even though the corkscrew willow doesn't grow as large as the weeping willow, again, it ultimately becomes too large a tree or too much maintenance to maintain it of a size that might be appropriate for most things. You might be able to use it in a, in a uh, rain garden or a rooftop garden or something, but not a lot of other things. So the Filtera company, for whom uh, Mindy is the and development manager, gave me a little grant, and we established the Virginia Tech Willow Nursery. And what I did is I went to the mail order, mail order catalog of Forest Farm, which I think is the largest mail order catalog that there is of woody plants. Uh, they're out of and, and I simply started reading the descriptions of the different willows. And any of them that sounded like they should be able to live in zone eight and might have desirable landscape characteristics. I bought a couple of them, and we lined them. Well, you can see here 
the results. In the background, I've got ones that grew huge. They're not going to be able to use. In the foreground, I've got a cute little petite one, and it might work in some situations, but it's not going to work the work that uh, Mindy and I are doing. Uh, we've got a couple that are dying, so either they were not cold tolerant or heat tolerant there. We've simply let them grow and gone through and recorded their characteristics, their growth rate, and in the past two summers, how delicious they were to Japanese beetles. Now, um, I'm going to show you just the 24 uh, species that we're using. And I have to be honest, if I fell over most of these plants, I wouldn't have had the foggiest idea what they So when they came in, I said to my technician, if you lose the tag for these things, so help me, you're going to be the one that sits there with a the key and figures out what all of them are. Some of you may know some of these that I simply do not. I know a couple of them is all. All right, so we set up our nursery both for the evaluation of landscape characteristics and as a place, uh, as a stock area, so that we can propagate for the, from these and you in our research. And uh, the gentleman on the left is Jack Irwin, another of my graduate students, a certified artist who works for the city of Norfolk, Virginia. And on the right is my dear, dear right hand, my technician, Frank. Uh, another graduate student who did the literature search uh, did some propagation work for me, Judy Ferguson, looking at what might be the best propagation substrate to use. And we discovered, psh, just stick them in sand. We don't need any expensive uh, substrates. You can root these things in sand. So we've been rooting them in the greenhouse. We also have a production unit that is referred to as a cellugrow. That came out years ago. There's a hybrid of between container and field production. Never caught on in the nursery industry. I presented it last year that we were using it as at attention home, working with the uh, children there to grow trees for use under overhead utility lines. But Jack down in the bottom right is using a cellugrow to stick the. Uh, I want to show you the first two willows that we are working with. Um, this one, the dappled or flamingo willow, is in commercial in Virginia. And so I wanted to at least have one that I knew was available in the industry. And the little uh, insert there, it is very pretty. It is a variegated leaf. It is a cream and green. But as foliage comes out, it has a reddish tinge to it, and the new stems have a reddish tinge. So it's a very, very attractive willow. And then one I fell in love with because I liked its upright growth form. I understand why in a minute when Mindy presents her part. It is a blue silver. It has a pubescent leaf. It is a gorgeous plant. It is not in production. And I talked to a couple of our, my nursery friends on the eastern shore of Virginia, and they said, if you fall in love with any of these things, just let us know. We're going to start propagating them for us. So this is how we modified Lori's water hyacinth research to do our woodies. And again, that's Jack Irwin there. Uh, we use an insulation board, a foam board, and we drill nine holes. We have three replications of each rate of nitrogen that we use, but we thought, well, if we only had one plant and only three reps, 
my statistician's gonna be really ticked off at me, so the nine represent nine subsamples, so that in case we have one or die, we will still get a good number for that rep. We use uh, pipe insulation to wrap around the rooted line. We insert it in the hole. You can see in the bottom left, uh, blue color, that is concentrations of nitrogen that we have used, and then the greenhouse laid out with a variety of wood rooted woody liners and some more of the water hyacinths in the uh, front of it. This is the work we just harvested from this spring. Uh, we used the two willow species that I showed you, and then we used four other plants. And my thinking um, when we got into this was, what plants really might be hyperaccumulators? Well, my guess was possibly those that are bottomland species where you know, a lot of polluted water might be running or passing by them. And so we have four bottomland species as the others, so we have six different species here replicated three times at three different rates of uh, nitrogen. Uh, we have uh, Ilex uh, verticillata, the winter berry, or one of the deciduous hollies. We have red twig dogwood, Cornus sericea. Uh, uh, we have uh, Virginia sweet spot, uh, Itea virginiana, and we have buttonbush, uh, Cephalanthus occidentalis. Uh, there you see the buttonbush, when harvesting them, um, going from the left to the right, the highest level of nitrogen down to the runty little red looking one, which had no nitrogen in the water. Uh, we collect the root and shoot, we buy them down so we get dry weights as part of our analysis, and then we, send, then we bag, we grind and uh, send off the leaves to a lab to do an analysis of the tissue content uh, for us. Um, we don't have a lot of data yet, and I know often that's a, wants to listen to all that data anyway. And uh, unfortunately, I made the mistake of in 2007 using one lab to do my analysis, and 2008 a different one. They do their analysis differently, they do data differently, and so I was having a great deal of difficulty comparing things. So last year and this year, we'll use the same lab, and we'll have more years worth of comparable data. Though you with the button bush, where you saw obvious mental increase in growth with the increase in nitrogen rate. Um, when we increased the rate, yes, it became statistically significant. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, if you have different letters behind numbers, that means those two numbers are statistically significant. Well, duh, the highest level gave the biggest growth. That's not so surprising. Um, Look at the uptake of phosphorus, though, as we went up in rate. Major, major increase in the uptake of the phosphorus. And we were doing this, or the data uh, was significant at what they would say would be the 95% probability uh, level. This year, um, or last year when we harvested uh, research that we did with the button butch, which is the CO, and the SI and the SG, which are my two willows, um, what you will see is the willows were actually doing a better job than the button bush. They physically didn't look like they were growing as much, but they per uh, unit of tissue were accumulating far more, and they significantly accumulated more nitrogen and more phosphorus. So what Mindy and I are going to do next year is our entire greenhouse uh, work is going to be devoted to more species of the willows that we have in the nursery. 
And at this point, I would like to turn this over to Mindy Ruby. All right, thank you, Bonnie. Uh, before I talk about our research with Virginia Tech, I'd like to give you a brief history of our attention and how uh, Filtera was developed as an advanced fire attention system. Uh, attention was founded in 1993 in Prince George's County, Maryland by Larry Kaufman, and he also uh, helped write the first low-impact development manual in that county, and that manual is still used today by many regulators. For those that don't know, um, typical components of a attention system typically consist of a sand and organic substrate with vegetation, typically a, a small tree or shrub or grass with mulch and an undrain system. The removal mechanisms uh, primarily rely on infiltration and plant uptake. And Larry Kaufman is not only uh, the technical, um, or kind of developed the idea of bioretention, he's also the inventor and technical advisor um, of the Volterra bioretention system. And his business is to create a commercialized uh, high flow rate system for optimum performance. And so to develop the system, um, he optimized the use of bioretention's physical, chemical, and biological pollutant removal mechanisms. And there at the bottom, I've just got uh, what a typical bioretention system looks like on the left, and then um, what a filter system looks like on the right. What makes bioretention unique is that it's a sustainable design, uh, including physical, chemical, and biological removal processes. Uh, the processes occur in two different stages. You have your primary and your secondary stages. Your primary stages are your instantaneous stage uh, mechanisms, and these are, occur during your storm event. And these include sedimentation, filtration, absorption, adsorption, and ion exchange capacity. And these are chemical properties. Um, and then in between your storm events, um, these are more time dependent. And these are biological mechanisms. They include microbial action, aerobic and, and anaerobic, uh, plant take, sequestering of nutrients, carbon, and metals, as well as and uh, volatilization. And so the idea here um, is that, you know, as these pollutants enter into uh, the substrate and the plants uptake them, you're creating more biomass in the system and making those absorptions available again, which makes it a sustainable system. Now, leaders work with others around the country. Uh, we're finding, you know, the use of these old design standards were not really up to date. They were finding some issues in the field. Um, a lot of times, the substrate that was used would have too much clay or organics, which would slow the flow rate down. They found a lot of times it would have poor drainage um, due to underdrain system failures. And a lot of times, this is because there's a geotextile fabric that's placed um, above the underdrain and below the will clog uh, over time. And then, so the filter system's kind of gotten around that uh, by using a bridgeable gravel to emanate that fabric in the system. And then also you've got media variability depending on where you're getting uh, that source from. And then contractors oftentimes um, will substitute uh, different substrates on the field that might just use some existing soil in the field if they're trying to cut corners or that sort of thing. soil scientists. And then sometimes, depending on where you're getting your substrate from, um, if, for example, if you're mining it from an old agricultural field, a lot of times um, if this could be high in phosphorus or heavy metals. And then, of course, sizing and space can be an issue. Um, typically, biotension cells are about 3 to 5% uh, of your area, where um, with a filtration system a high, with a high flow rate, you're treating a lot of water in a small space. And then maintenance, too can also be higher with on, you know, a larger, uh, slower flow rate system um, simply because there's more surface you're having to maintain. So the idea of advancing this function design with Filtera was to optimize um, on these design standards um, and on the performance and flow rates. And so a lot of my job, um, about 50% of it is quality control, and that's ensuring that um, the substrate in our system um, is meeting a certain gradation, it's meeting a certain flow rate, and it's fertility. 
um, when we send it off for analyses. And then the other half is really product development, and that's where we're trying to enhance the product um, for pollutant removal, and that's where a lot of my research has come into play with Bonnie. This is just to give a schematic here to give you an idea of what the Filtera system looks like above and below ground. Um, above ground, you can see the uh, common landscape plant and your tree grate. Um, this is all contained in a concrete landscape container. Inside, um, you've got your typical mulch. You've got dissipator stones um, to prevent erosion. And then you've got 21 inches of media there and then uh, your underdrain system with a perforated pipe uh, which can be um, discharged into a catch basin, curb cut, or other means of overflow relief. Um, activation of the system uh, simply involves us going out there to inspect the site to make sure that there's no construction sediment or anything going into the system. So once the site is stabilized, we will not activate it. And that involves um, actually taking the bracing and the, removing the grates um, off of the system. We then install the specified plant. We install three inches of mulch. And then we have final inspection and cleanup and water the plant. Uh, this is to give you an idea of what these look like in the ground. These can be put in in residential, commercial, um, or street applications. And you can see it's a nice green solution to treating stormwater runoff. Now, the majority of plants currently used in phytoremediation applications, you know, like Bonnie mentioned earlier, your stormwater ponds, your wetlands, your riparian buffers, that sort of thing, um, have used herbaceous or non-woody plants, um, where uh, these fiction systems here, we're trying to look at more woody. And so uh, new stormwater systems like the system are being incorporated into streetscapes and landscapes. And so you're getting an added environmental benefit from the tree because you're allowing it to also be used as a, a hyperaccumulator. And so our research then has been really important on and looking at um, trying to screen these different kind of landscape plants to identify what might be hyperaccumulators. And so um, in order to better understand the plant's role uh, in the filtration system, what we did um, was conducted parallel studies where we um, had the same species filtration system and then planted a replicate uh, in the adjacent landscape. And this, um, we chose systems that were all the same size. We would choose a site that had at least three of the same size and would plant three to four replicate plants in the landscape so that way we were ensuring we would get statistical significance. And we would try to place these plants as close to the system as possible. They were um, you know, under the same environmental conditions. And these sites are in Tidewater and in the greater Richmond area. And if you let's take a quick look at the photos, um, this is, these are actually three years apart. It's the same system. And you'll see um, in the left photo, um, dated May 2006, um, this Filtera system had just been activated. And it was a very, very clean uh, new parking lot. And so the plant's not getting a lot of nutrients at that time. But then the plant in the nursery is fresh in its potting soil mix. You can see it's nice and dark green. It's getting um, a lot of nutrients. But three years later, you can see that the Filtera system there is getting a lot more uh, runoff, so the tree has grown a lot more. Uh, but it's also greened up because of, uh, the site's gotten dirtier over time. That sediment's carrying nutrients into the system, uh, where the landscape, players landscape plant there is looking a little more chlorotic. And then we also uh, placed an educational identification plate on these systems, um, just so that the general public knows that this is treating stormwater runoff and not to damage uh, the plant or remove it. And then to show you a few examples of some of our test sites, uh, this is at a Carolot Pet Supply Company in Virginia Beach. And you can see the, um, uh, you can see the uh, plant there in the landscape and, uh, in the Filtera system. The common landscape plants that we're looking at um, right now are kind of based on a lot of times what's specified in our systems. And these include Nellie Stevens holly, holly Foster holly, uh, crepe myrtle, wax myrtle, and the winter red winterberry. Uh, for our pollutant evaluation, we went out on uh, 07 and 08 
toward the end of the summer, early fall, um, when we would have uh, more accumulation in the leaf tissue and collected samples from the filtration system and also from the landscape plant um, to compare differences. These were taken back to uh, Bonnie's research facility where they were grounded up and then prepared for shipment uh, to A&L Eastern Laboratories. And then the results right now are very preliminary, um, but this here is phosphorus uptake for uh, two years at two Richmond locations. Um, we found that there was no correlation between year and location, so the locations were pooled. And we did see a statistically significant difference, 07 to 08, um, and these are units of measurement uh, presented in percentages, and we can say that uh, that is statistically significant with 98% confidence limits. And then we compare the uh, Filtera filtration system compared to the landscape on system plant tissue. Um, we also see a statistically significant um, more uptake of phosphorus in the Filtera system uh, with 97 limits. And the plant there that we were using uh, was a Nellie Stephens um, holly. We also looked at heavy metals and we pulled those locations as well. Um, we saw no difference in uptake for boron, iron, magnesium, sodium, and sulfur. We did see significantly more uptake in three micronutrients and one macronutrient. Uh, we saw more uptake in the Filtera system of the calcium, copper, uh, nickel, and zinc. And we thought this was very important too because there's a lot of TMDLs out there that are, are total maximum daily loads, which you know, a lot of state regulatory um, agencies are required to meet in jurisdictions, and we, especially in the Northwest. And we find that this um, is going to be really great for out there um, for potentially the idea of being able to create plant lists um, based on uh, certain pollutants of concern. And then lastly, we saw that the landscape um, significantly had more uptake of alumin, aluminum and manganese. I happened to notice one day when we were out on the site um, doing some of our research that a body had been located near Filtero units, and I thought, hmm, what a new way to skew your data. And I showed that to the national sales manager who I uh, helped years ago come up with their initial plant list. And uh, Terry said, Bon, I can do one better on you. Why don't we just put them on top of the Filtera units and then we will be sure we have plenty of pollutants. So anyway, at this point, thank you. We will entertain questions, but we would also like if any of you have plants that you'd like to suggest that we try, any of you who know of other research that's been done, anything that might enhance what we are working on, we would welcome your input. This concludes the talk by Dr. Bonnie Appleton and Mindy Ruby on phytoremediation of water using landscape plants. You can receive ISA continuing education units for this talk. To get these credits, go to the ISA website, find the Education and Research tab, then look for eLearning and ISA online quizzes. The code for this lecture is SA9277. Again, SA9277. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques 
Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. 